Well, as you may or may not know, we are in the third part of our series called Why in the World? And if you missed the first two parts, I really hope you'll go online to our website or uh, sub- subscribe to our podcast and listen to those uh, first two parts. But as we get started this morning, I want you to think back for a minute to elementary school or, or junior high school. Uh, for some of us, uh, it hasn't been that long. Others, has been a little bit longer. But, you know, elementary school, like, wasn't that like the best of times? In the worst of times, kind of, you know, the best times, like, because you can come and you can bring your blanket or you, we had a little mat we could bring and we could take a nap. I mean, that was your job at school was to take a nap. And that was like awesome. And, and now we're like, oh, I wish that was part of my job. Uh, now, you know, it's like, oh, I could get work done by getting my nap. I don't know if we got graded for nap time or what, but uh, those are the, some, of the, some of the good times in elementary school. Then you had some of the bad times. Anybody here ever get picked on? Picked on or, or kind of like at all? No, seriously. None of you guys ever got picked on in school? Like never were in junior high school or anything like that? I tell you, uh, that's, that's part of, for me, I mean, it wasn't bullying so much, but when I was in elementary school, I was the third from the last in athletic ability in my grade, you know? And, and I knew, know this because every time we would go out for gym class uh, and the coach would have like, pick the kids and they'd always pick like superstar athletes, you know, whatever. And they would like be like, I'm going to pick for kickball teams. I was third from last. There was two kids behind me, Chris Miller and John Mondo. And I still remember these guys. And I was so thankful for them because they got picked on more than me. And at least I wasn't last. And, and one was a little overweight and one was just less athletic than me, which is amazing because I set a pretty high bar for anti-athleticism. I mean, I was not always the jock you see up here today. So, yeah, they, uh, yeah, they, they kind of got picked on. And if you've ever been that way, you know, uh, got picked on for something, uh, you know, maybe it was something you had no control over. Uh, you know, maybe um, buck teeth or your hair was goofy or the stuff that you wore, you know, like uh, something different about you physically or just like who you hung around or just the fact that you're in junior high school and, you know, <laughs> this is what happens in junior high school. But if you've ever been picked on like that or, or discriminated against kind of, it's very dehumanizing. It's very dehumanizing. And, and in the United States, we have a, a intolerance, extraordinary intolerance for, for bullying and intolerance. We, we don't like intolerance. We have no tolerance for people that are intolerant. You know, and bullying is bad in the United States, which is good. We have a high value for accepting people and tolerating people and showing acceptance to all kinds of people. And we believe bullying is bad. But what you may not know, and, and this is what we're going to talk about today, is that low tolerance for bullying and high value that we give to individuals? It's actually a reflection of our Christian value system in our nature in our nation. In, in other words, you might think, "Well, that's just natural, you know, be against bullying, being you know," but it's not natural. In fact, respect for the individual is not a natural thing at all. What's natural is might makes right, right? Uh, well, that's what's natural. In fact, you find that in a lot of other countries and a lot of other cultures. Like you, you get the news and, and, and you watch it and you hear about stuff that's going on in other countries and you're like, why can't they just get along? Right? Like, why can't they, they, why would they treat children that way? Or why would they treat, you know, women that way? How can they treat people who don't look like them that way? What's wrong with those people? Don't they know that you're supposed to give everybody value? That every individual has value? Well, no, because that's not a natural thing. Natural is the original golden rule. You guys know what the original golden rule is, right? 
He who has the gold makes the rules. Yeah, he who has the gold makes the rules. That's how the rest of the world operates. And, and that's how this country operated not, not long ago. Natural is what happened in elementary school or, or junior high school often. And most of us have experienced, even if you want to admit it. <laughs> Natural is like, I want to find something about you that I don't like. And so I have an advantage over you. I, I'm going to leverage up or leverage that thing. I'm going to power up over you. Natural is if you're just a little bit different than me, then I'm going to point out that fact that you're a little bit different than me. And that's in all of us to find something, you know, in somebody not to like uh, that they may have no control over. And we've all been guilty of that. But here's the thing. Our assumption that individuals have value is actually something that we've learned, okay? It's not an assumed value. Something we've been taught, something we've We've learned not an assumed value. That's why like Thomas Jefferson and uh, Benjamin Franklin obsessed and, and wordsmithed over these famous words from the Declaration of Independence. They said, we hold these truths to be self-evident. What is self-evident? That's just something where if you stop and think about it long enough, you go, oh yeah, yeah, they, yeah, yeah, that's self-evident. Everybody should know that. So they said, we hold these truths to be self-evident that all men are created equal and that they are endowed by their creator with certain inalienable or unalienable rights. They're like, hey, we all know this. We all know this. Everybody, if they sit and pause long enough, they're going to figure it out. Okay, yeah, yeah, that's self-evident. Everybody should know that if there's a creator, okay, and God created all people, then God sees all people as equal. So there's equality among men and, and women it's just self-evident if you stop and think about it. But they also knew that, that uh, you know, we're not going to stop and think about it. That's why they had to include this later on in the Declaration of Independence. They said that in order to secure these rights, in other words, even though it's kind of self-evident that we're all created equal and everybody has certain rights, we've got to secure those rights. Why? Because it's not natural. Natural is you make fun of people who are different than you. And naturally, you power up over people you have power over. Natural is discrimination. Natural is prejudice. Natural is we don't like them, whoever them is. And even though it's self-evident that we're all equal, natural isn't always self-evident. So they said to secure these rights, governments are instituted among men deriving their just powers from the consent of the governed. So what they're saying is like, what we all know is this. Even though, if you stop and think about it, if we believe that there's a God who created people, then there's equality among men. Even though that's self-evident, if we don't have a government or somebody just to come along every once in a while and go, hey, knock it off. You can't treat them that way. You can't say that about them. If we don't have someone reminding us of this self-evident truth, we devolve into groups of people that do all kinds of terrible things to people. To people who don't deserve it because they have no control over the very thing that we hate them for or mistreat them for. Self-evidence, only self-evident to those who understand that there is a relationship between the creator and the creature. Self-evident is only self-evident for those who pause long enough and go, oh yeah, if there's a God, then we're all equal in God's eyes. And because self-evident isn't natural, oftentimes we opt for natural over self-evident. And that's one of the reasons why Jesus came to this planet. To take what is self-evident when we stop and think about it 
and to elevate it to the point where we can't possibly miss it. And that's what we're going to talk about today. Now, the premise for our entire series is that God became one of us. Okay? And John, who was an eyewitness, one of Jesus' closest followers, he saw the entire ministry of Jesus. He puts it this way. He says that the Word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. Literally, he camped out. He pitched his tent, his tabernacled among us, made his dwelling among us. And what we're doing in this series is we're asking the question, why? Like, why in the world did God come as one of us and live as one of us among us? Why did he do that? And we kind of all know the big Sunday school answer. You know, we're going to get to that because that is extremely important. But there are some other subtle things that we find in the Gospels related to why Jesus came to this planet. So for the first two weeks, we talked about the first one, and that that is God came to live among us and be part of us to communicate and to demonstrate what God is like. So Jesus came in human flesh as one of us in order to communicate and to demonstrate what God is like. We said it this way, that Jesus didn't simply have the best explanation for God. Jesus was the best explanation for God. He embodied that explanation. And the best you'll ever understand God is Jesus. And the closer you get to Jesus, the closer you get to God. The second reason, the thing that we're going to talk about today is simply this. That Jesus came to elevate the dignity of the individual. Now, the thing that's almost impossible for us to understand, you know, no matter how much history you know or how many movies we may have seen, is that when Jesus came into this world, people were considered commodities. People were owned. Now, when we think of in terms of slavery, we think of like, you know, colonial America, which was absolutely horrible, obviously. But even in pre-Civil War America, there was this thread of conscience that linked uh, Christianity to, to people because that was the primary religion in colonial America. But when you rewind all the way to the first century, there was none of that because in the first century, like the gods did not treat people well and people felt no compulsion to treat each other well. There was no sense of like, well, hey, God's going to hold us accountable for how we treat the people around us. There was none of that in the Greek way of thinking or the Roman way of thinking. So people were owned And in the world of slavery in the first century, there was even a pecking order. You had your household slaves, you had your field slaves, you had slaves that would work in the salt mines. And children, children had no rights. Like, you know, often they weren't even named until they they lived long enough to make sure they were going to continue to live. And parents had the option, you know. If you got a, a living infant, you could decide you don't want them and just leave them out to die. Women had no rights. Women had no opportunity like to choose who they would marry or, or if they would marry. Oftentimes, uh, they were promised to somebody before they were even born. So the individual had no value in that world. If you had things, if you had power, and if you had money, you were viewed as blessed by God. And so consequently, you got more and more money and wealth and power. But if you weren't in that elite group of people, you had little to no rights. Everywhere you looked around you, there was injustice upon injustice upon injustice. And the person that suffered the most was the individual because, you know, there was no individual dignity. There was no sense of like, well, hey, because I'm human, I have certain rights. Since I'm human, I have certain value. They, they didn't view the gods that way. And by the time Jesus showed up, no one viewed the world the way that most of us view it. Our, our sense of individual dignity 
That's learned. It's not natural. And Jesus comes along and he elevated the dignity of the individual. Lots of ways. He elevated the dignity of the individual through his teaching, for one thing. Some of the stories that we're most familiar with. The story of the Good Samaritan. Okay? Takes this person who was considered uh, like a half-breed, kind of an outcast, and he makes him the hero of the story. This Samaritan shows more grace and mercy than than a priest or Levite or teacher of the law. You got the, the trilogy of lost things, the lost sheep, the lost coin, the lost son. Like some of you are familiar with that. And we don't really get it because we don't understand that culture. But when Jesus would teach those parables, he elevated the status of that individual sheep, uh, uh, the importance of that lost individual coin, the importance of a distanced second-born son, because first-born sons got all the status. They had more than half of the inheritance. But in this story, it was the value of the second-born that had rebelled against his father. In that trilogy of lost things, Jesus elevated the value even of women by allowing a woman to be a part of the story. He got the Sermon on the Mount where Jesus said, blessed are the poor. And the people who were poor go, blessed? Like, I thought I was cursed. You know, I thought the reason we didn't have anything was because God had forgotten about us. And Jesus said, no, you're blessed. Blessed are those who mourn. Well, mourn, that, that means bad things are happening to me because God has turned his back on me. And Jesus is like, no. That's not the case at all. Blessed are those of you who are persecuted. Blessed are those of you who are going through hard times because your Heavenly Father knows. And then that precious story of the widow's might. You know, Jesus standing in the temple and all the the rich people and the middle class people, they're coming and they're dropping their money in the offering bucket as they're coming through. This poor lady comes up and, and drops, you know, two coins, the very last she had. And Jesus is like, hey, she gave more than everybody else. The guys are like, no, she didn't. Like, she gave less than everybody else. And Jesus says, no, she's more righteous because she gave everything. And we hear a story like that and we think, oh, how precious, you know. Isn't that just cute, you know. But in that moment, Jesus elevated a woman who thought God had turned his back on her. That he had cursed her. Otherwise, why was she a widow? Why had her husband died and left her destitute? And Jesus is like, no. No, she gave more. And in doing so, he valued that woman. If you read the Gospels, you'll find time after time after time of Jesus in his teaching, elevating people who had never been elevated in that culture. But he didn't do it just through his teaching. Jesus elevated the dignity of individuals through his interactions with individuals. Yet the the story of the Samaritan woman at the well. And Jesus stops Uh, to get something to drink and the rest of the disciples go down into Samaria to get some food. They're not even supposed to be there in the first place because, you know, you get Samaritan cooties and stuff like that. And they they didn't want that. But they come back out of the city with some food and Jesus is talking to a woman. And John tells us that they were shocked. He was talking publicly to a woman. That rabbi wouldn't do that. And not just a woman, but a Samaritan woman. And in doing so, he elevated the dignity of this woman. You got the, the Roman centurion Okay, everybody hated the Romans, especially the centurions. This Roman centurion approaches Jesus, asks him for a favor, and Jesus does him a favor. And he healed a servant. And in doing so, Jesus elevated the status of a servant. And he elevated the status of a Roman centurion in a culture where Romans were absolutely despised. And you got the famous story of Zacchaeus and Matthew, the tax collectors, 
You know, Jesus stops by Matthew's table and is like, hey, I want you to follow me. And, he, and we're going to go to your house. And I'm going to risk my reputation by having a dinner party with you and your friends. You, you invite them. And then one day, he's passing by a crowd of people and he sees Zacchaeus, this tax collector, who climbed up in a tree in order to see him. Jesus pauses and goes, hey, Zacchaeus, come down. I want to go with you to your house. And I'm going to tarnish my reputation by entering your home. And I want to have dinner with you. You got the stories where, where Jesus is teaching and, and the little children come to him. You know, the parents want him blessed and they just want to come be held by Jesus. And the disciples are like, no, 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 not children. And we read that and we go like, what is wrong with the disciples? Like, right, you know, do they have no compassion at all? They don't want children to come close to Jesus. But you got to understand, in that culture, children didn't matter. And Jesus says, let the children come to me. And he, in those moments, he elevated the status of children. And he touched the sick. Like, we can't hardly imagine this. They didn't understand germs, but they understood this. You don't touch sick people. Because if you touch sick people, like, you become ceremonially unclean. And, and Jesus touched the physically ill, and he, touched, and he interacted with the mentally ill and dealt with them. And, and then toward the end of his life, he had a conversation with a convict. And he promised this convict that because he recognized who Jesus was, that very day a convict would receive the grace and mercy of God. Like throughout his ministry, Jesus paused and he raised the dignity of, of individuals who had no dignity in this very difficult, chaotic, and cruel culture. But the capstone, like the, the epicenter, the punctuation of this lesson was when Jesus died. That Jesus elevated the dignity of the individual to the greatest degree through his death. See, we believe God sent his son into this world to die for our sins, all of us. Every single individual who ever lived. Which means that at the cross, everybody's dignity was raised to a level we know we don't deserve. And at the foot of the cross, we're all made equal in the sight of God. The Apostle Paul put it this way. He said, very rarely will anyone die for a righteous person. Like you might see it in a movie or read it in a book or something like that. But very rarely in real life will someone die for a righteous person, though for a good person, someone might possibly uh, be willing to give their life. But God, but God, but God demonstrates his own love for us. You know who the us is? It's all of us. It's us. And it's all the us's at at your work. And it's all the us's at your school. And it's all the, the us's that you love to talk about. It's all the us's that you, you love to discriminate against. It's all the us's that you have a bad attitude toward. It's all the us's that mistreated you and, and now you have an opportunity to mistreat them back. He demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Which means we're all the same in God's eyes. And that's the way Jesus lived and treated people. Philip Yancey puts it this way. He says, you know, like on this planet, we're very aware of like uh, the peaks and the valleys. You got mountaintops and you got the, the deep valleys. You got the, the depths of the sea. He says, but from outer space, like the earth is, is just a smooth ball. And perhaps from the vantage point of holiness, in the vantage point of sinlessness, when Jesus looked at you and Jesus looked at me, 
when Jesus looked at the sin of the world, there just wasn't all that much difference. And from his vantage point, we were all sinners who were separated from God and desperately in need of a Savior. And perhaps that's why Jesus had such a low tolerance for self-righteous people. That's the people who are like, well, because of who I am and because of what I have and and who I'm related to and and what I haven't done or what I have done, somehow my efforts and my my works, my goodness, my, my inherent moralness sets me apart from other people. That's the thing that drove him crazy and the thing that he got most incensed about. He had no tolerance for that. And perhaps it's because Jesus knew we're really just shades of gray away from one another. You could summarize it this way, that when people use the words of God to hurt people bearing the image of God, Jesus was quick to remind them that they were on the wrong side of God. In the Gospels, whenever somebody tried to take the words of God and twist them in such a way that they were able to alienate or hurt people who bore the image of God, Jesus was quick to remind them, no, 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 no. Not not my father, not me, not on my watch. Because from my perspective, you're all basically the same. Which means, at the foot of the cross, I lose my right to discriminate against anybody for any reason. means that the Christian community should be the most non-discriminatory group of people in the world. That if Christians had any reputation at all, Because of what Jesus did for us, our reputation should be like, hey, they believe some crazy stuff, but look at the way they treat one another. Look at the way they treat other people. That we should be known for how well we treat others. That people could criticize us for what we believe because we believe some crazy stuff, but they should actually be envious of the way that we treat one another. Because if Jesus was correct, and I've said this before, like if somebody can predict their own death and resurrection and pull it off, I'm with them, right? Okay, I'll just go with that. I think he was correct, but if Jesus was correct, everybody's somebody. Because everybody is somebody that God loves. And everybody is somebody that Jesus died for. Now, if you're a Christian, that's self-evident. It's just not natural. If God created everybody, and then Jesus came to pay for everybody's sins, then everybody is somebody then it's self-evident that for me to treat someone poorly is basically to say to God, like, God, I've got higher standards than you. (laughs) You you don't understand about these people, God. It's to really show extraordinary, extraordinary disrespect for what God has done for each of us. And here's what I don't want you to miss. If you're a Christian, you can't live with an I'm better than because of attitude toward anyone. That's self-righteousness. That there's something about me that makes me better than you. And Jesus hated that. And as much better as I might think I am than somebody else, Jesus would shake his head and say, no, no, different, yeah, better, no. And for, for some of you, you might need to repent of that attitude. Maybe it's toward somebody of a different skin color or somebody who hangs out with a different group of people than you or has kind of a different culture than you different amount of money than you do, different kind of job, different educational level, whatever it is. It's sin. And it's the thing that bothered Jesus the most. And you need to repent. And from this point going forward, you need to do what Jesus did. 
You need to look for opportunities to elevate the dignity of people that you have a tendency not to give dig- dignity to. And when you feel that, that resistance, that, that emotion, you just realize it's sin. And you're not going to let it rule your life anymore. And you'll recognize that it's self-evident that all people should be treated with dignity. And we're going to be a community of believers who treat others the way our Heavenly Father, through Jesus, treated us. Because one of the reasons Jesus came and dwelt among us was to illustrate and to teach that all men and women are loved by God and have dignity because they bear the image of God in them. Can you imagine if the church just got that part right? Like, can you imagine if the reputation of the church was, hey, they believe some crazy stuff, but I'm telling you, like, look at the way they love. Um, uh, they, they believe some guy was ro- rose from the dead. And I don't believe that, but I'm telling you, look at the way they love. Because this was to be our reputation from the very beginning. Now, if you've been here, I gave you some homework the last couple weeks, and I got some more homework for you today. So if you have been reading Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, I told you to pick one of the Gospels, and look for opportunities to see, uh, to learn about the Father from the Son. What do we learn about the Father from the Son? That was the first two weeks. And now I want you to start doing this as well. I want you to look for places in the life of Jesus where he elevated the dignity of the individual because they're everywhere. I want you to look for how he interacts with people who are outcasts, with shepherds and working class people and, and women and children, people who are known sinners. And as you begin to read the Gospels, look at the way Jesus went out of his way to elevate the dignity of the individuals because that's one of the reasons why Jesus came into this world and dwelt among us. Let me pray for you. Heavenly Father, Thank you so much for preserving these ancient texts and giving us the opportunity to carry them around and to read them and reread them. And thank you for bringing these texts to life today. And Father, this may have been kind of a tough one for some of us because it's in all of us. And I just pray that we would have the courage to face you with it, to repent of this sin and to move on. So be with us as we apply your word to our lives as as we live it out. Help us to understand. Give us wisdom to know what to do with what we've heard. And then give us the courage to do it. We love you and we ask all these things in the name of your precious son, Jesus, who died for us. Amen.